We are in 2 Samuel this morning. Uh, turn in there, if you have it, to chapter 23. As we um, finish out this book, we're going to be looking at the first seven verses today and then jump into chapter 24 next week. Um, and after that, we'll be in the book of Galatians. Um, right on, we'll, we'll look at the book, an introductory uh, look in the book of Galatians on, on Palm Sunday. So, by the way, I know Chris mentioned about Easter. Um, I don't know, maybe I missed it, but we are having Easter service here. I know last year, many of you were with us down at the Ravina High School, but with the wall not being here, we're going to have the service right here. The kids will be in the back, and uh, we'll have more information, as, as Chris said, but the service will be here. Um, and we'll be looking at Galatians. So we start Palm Sunday, and we'll look at the first couple of verses on Easter morning. So uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. Take one home with you. Uh, be reading and, and just reflecting on and studying the book of Galatians as we uh, jump into that book, um, as I said, Palm Sunday. But for now, we're in chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. Because it's just a short passage, I just want to read it to you. Uh, This morning, and then we'll look at it together. So, 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. Then we'll look at it more in depth. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Verse 6, But worthless men are like the thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them, touches them, arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word. This morning, as we've been saying, chapters 21 through 24 is what is known as the epilogue, an epilogue of this two volume work, first and second Samuel, one book in the Hebrew text. They're they're concluding remarks of a really important time of Israel. And as we read uh, this epilogue, remember that is not in a chronological order, as we saw Uh, David is reflecting back at some point here. He's reflecting forward, but it's not chronological, but it's not random either. It's not like the the narrator just threw a couple of, you know, chapters together and say, hey, let's finish this up and wrap this up. Let's let's figure out. No, the Spirit of God inspired the narrator to put these together as he did uh, to speak through David. Dr. Bill Arnold, in one of his commentaries, um, he wrote this. I thought this was pretty good. It kind of sums up why uh, these last four chapters are the epilogue and not in chronological order. He says this, It is not difficult to see why our narrator has concluded Samuel in such a way. The Absalom rebellion and its aftermath is logically continued in the opening chapters of 1 Kings, where you'll learn about David's death, which the narrator, the succession of Solomon... Again, that's in 1 Kings. He says, but in these episodes, 
David appears, uh, but in those episodes, I'm sorry, let, let me, let, it's been a rough week. It is not difficult to see why our narrator has concluded Samuel in such a way. The Absalom rebellion and its aftermath is logically continued in the opening chapters of 1 King, which narrate the succession of Solomon. But in those episodes, David appears impotent, helpless, and at the mercy of people around him. Our narrator has woven 2 Samuel 21 through 24, the epilogue, together to portray David in his prime. Here he is at the top of his game. They describe David in all his military greatness and full of reverential faith, reverent fear of faith. This is indeed an admirable conclusion to the books intended to answer the question, who may serve suitably as king of Israel, end quote. So in other words, David is on a downward spiral as we get to chapter 20. The kingdom is kind of unified, but there's a lot of problems. And, and the author and the, the narrator wants to point to better times of Israel before 1 Kings opens up where David is on his deathbed. Our text this morning, if you have your Bibles open, it says these are the last words of David. And if you look at the, your scripture, verses 1 through 7 are the last words, verse 8 through 39 which we're not looking at this morning, speaks of the mighty men of David, speak of David's leadership and and the men that served David in a mighty, uh, victorious, valiant way. When it says these are the last words of David, it does not mean that David said these words and then died. Actually, you can read that in 1 Kings while he's talking to Solomon. What, What... what the author is, is showing us that these are the sort of the last will and testament, a, a final literary legacy to Israel. That, that's what it means by these last words. David wrote this beautiful psalm, remember from last week, of thanksgiving. He looked back, if you remember from last week, at the mercy and the faithfulness of God, how God intervened. During his life, as he was running from Saul, when Saul was trying to kill him, when he was, when he was running from his enemies and found himself in these caves and, 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 and the wilderness, and God rescued him and delivered him. And although there are short verses on, on how uh, David responded with faith, David's Psalm, Psalm 22, is really about the glory of God and all that God has done, how, how God delivered him and God had saved him from his enemies. Last week, David was looking back. This week, his last words, David is looking forward to to the promises. He's trusting in the God who made a promise. Look at verse 22 of chapter 20, uh, excuse me, verse 51 of chapter 22. You see this connection uh, uh, in verse uh, chapter 22. He's speaking about the past. He's speaking about all that David has done. And then the very last verse, verse 51 of chapter 22, David says, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring when? Forever. Forever. David, David is looking back and in the last verse he's talking about the future and the narrator puts chapter 23 right there because now David is continuing looking to the future. Upward and onward, David is declaring. And look at, look at with me in chapter 22, verse 51. He used the word anointed. Chapter 22, verse 51 again. Offspring forever. He's talking about the covenant. We find that in chapter 23. Verse 1, the anointed of the God of Jacob. Verse 5. Everlasting covenant. 
David's looking back, trusting in the God of the covenant. David's looking forward, doing the same thing, trusting the God of the covenant. If there's anything you want, I, that I'd like you to remember in all of 1 and 2 Samuel, there's a lot to remember, but if there's one thing, it's 2 Samuel chapter 7. Mark that somewhere in your brain or in your Bible. It's when God speaks to David through the prophet and declares to him that he will make him a house, his dynasty, his lineage, sure forever an everlasting kingdom that will never, ever, ever fail. That's the big takeaway. And the promise that David received through the prophet from God, this, this promise of an everlasting kingdom, shapes David, shapes his mind, shapes his thoughts, not only as he's looking back at his life, at God's deliverance, but looking forward to his future. That's so important. That's, that's the big takeaway today. And, and David, in, this, in, this, uh, in his words, he, this another poem, this another psalm in chapter 23, is drawing extraordinary comfort as he contemplates his life ending at the promise that God has made to him and to us. We're maybe not king of Israel, but we could certainly stand with David and say, we've had some ups days and we had some down days. <laughs> right? His, his future hope, you need to see that his future hope, David's future hope is our hope. And it's not in his goodness and how well he reigned and ruled in Israel. It's exclusively on the word of God and the promise of God on the grace of God. The promise that David is resting in as he's contemplating the past and the future is the kingdom. Not just any kingdom, but an everlasting kingdom where the perfect peace, perfect justice, and righteousness dwells. Why? Because the king of peace will dwell. The king of justice, the king of righteousness will be ruling and reigning on his throne. And his name is Jesus. I'm going to go down a, a small bunny trail. We'll end on time. But let, let me just, this is so important because it, it's, it's applicable. The biblical, the scriptural, especially Old Testament and New Testament, we're talking about the Old Testament first, has, has deep roots in the Bible when it speaks of the kingdom of God. Okay? It's deeply rooted in, in, in Scripture, in the people's hearts. They, they, the, the people of God were, were confident as they were waiting on the one eternal God, the living God, who revealed himself to man, who has a purpose for mankind, and that is the king will come and reign in the kingdom. It goes back to Genesis 1. Beauty and, 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 and God's creation there's shalom, there's peace, there's beauty. There's not just spiritual peace, there's peace with one another. There's psychological, physical, and emotional peace. That's a picture of the kingdom, Genesis 1 and 2. Then in Genesis chapter 3, we know sin enters the world. The shalom, this, this perfect peace, this, this kingdom of God is fractured with sin and rebellion. And in chapter 3, God speaks into the rebellion, into the chaos, into the, the brokenness, into the, the sin of Adam and Eve, and he speaks a word of promise. As someday he will send a son. He'll be bruised, but ultimately he will crush the enemy. Genesis 3.15. And the promise continue. God shows up to a man named Abraham. 
And from your descendants, from your lineage, Abraham, I will bless the entire world. The kingdom of God will once again be ushered in through the line of Abraham, pointing, though, to a future day when the ultimate kingdom will come. And God raises up Moses and says, man, it's kingdom time. We're going into the land of milk and honey. A picture of the final kingdom. But there's a problem with Israel. There's a problem with the land of milk and honey that that flows as this plush, beautiful kingdom. There's a problem. The problem is the people. They went into there. They went into the land. Sinners. And they say, when you get to the land, they want, they want a king. We saw that in Samuel. We want a king like, like all the other kings. We, we're tired of our God, the king. We want a king. We want a man king. God gives them Saul. Tells them it's not going to go well. Trust me. They're like, that's okay. We want him anyway. Things don't go well. So God sends in David in the land to be king. He's the man that God wants, Right? He unifies the 12 tribes. He captures the city of Jerusalem. He carries in the ark of the covenant, this presence of God. He conquers his enemy, and things are really well, and God speaks to him that covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7. His offspring, his seed, someone will come, will be an ultimate king, an ultimate throne, an eternal throne. And we know his name is Jesus, and all this is kingdom imagery for the Jewish people. In fact, David's reign, when we were in it, 2 Samuel 8, When things were really good, it says, David reigned over Israel, and David administered justice and equity, justice and righteousness to all his people. This is is the picture. I want you to see it. This is what all the prophets have spoken about, this glorious and great day of the coming kingdom, and that's the pictures they were getting. That's the hope that they rested on, the reign and rule of the power and the power of God. Everything rested on that for the Jewish people. That is their great hope. That is our hope. Those of us who are children of Abraham, by faith, Galatians tells us. Malachi 4 closes in the Old Testament of the picture of this glorious day. The New Testament opens up. What's the first words on Jesus' lips? The kingdom of God is near. What's the first words on John the Baptist? The kingdom of God is near. The Pharisees say, when is the kingdom coming? When, when, Jesus, will we see the kingdom, this restoration of this fractured and broken world, when, when the, we have this king who will lead us and guide us and protect us, the shalom will be restored, Jesus. When? Over dozens, maybe 60 or 70 times I read, the word kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is mentioned in the New Testament. When you think of kingdom, you think of king. Jesus came into the world, invading this world to reign and to rule. And when we crown him, Jesus, Lord, King, ruler, we have stepped into, we smitten, we stepped into the kingdom, not in his perfection. In fact, Jesus said what? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not its righteousness, his righteousness, because he's the ruling, reigning king. King Jesus brought the kingdom of God to earth, and he will continue to place all things under his subjection and his sovereignty until he comes back and he reigns and rules in the promised kingdom that will come. A new earth, a new heaven, where righteousness rules, no more sickness, no more tears. That's the confidence 
That's the confidence that David had. That's the confidence that we have. Now listen, David was looking forward to that. He saw it dimly. We as the children of God who are post-cross recognize the work of Jesus in the gospel, the ministry of Jesus in the gospel, the, the cross, the empty tomb, the resurrection from the grave, the ascension into heaven. We see it even more clearly than David saw it. Where should our hope be? Where is our confidence? Only in the King of Kings and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. What God promised to do, he will do. Actually, what God promised to do, not only will do it, he's already started it, and his name is Jesus. And that's what I want us to see as we launch into this. We'll finish on time, but I want you to see that David's confidence, that our confidence in life and death, because that's what we're talking about, death. I had to deal with it all week long. You know, you ever, yeah, <laughs> this is probably crazy, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. Maybe because I'm older. I know if you're, you know, you're here, you're 17, you're 25, you don't think this way. But as you get older, you think, man, millions and millions and millions of people have died before me. I'm going to be that day one day. Where's your hope? What God promised he would do, he actually did in the coming of the greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate Christ, the ultimate anointed one. Okay, so our, as we look at this, that's what David's talking about. The end of his life and his hope, he talked about the past, he's looking to the future, and I, I stole an outline, I'm gonna tell you, I told you it was a rough week. This is Dr. Derek Thomas, uh, pastor, uh, Mississippi, uh, the simple ABCs of the kingdom, right? The ABCs of the redemptive work of God in the kingdom. So it's his, I'm taking it, I didn't ask, I'm just using it. <laughs> he put it online, he shouldn't have done it, I'm just letting you know it's his. The ancestry of the kingdom, the beauty of the kingdom, and the covenant of the kingdom. Verse 1. Do you know that 2 Timothy is the last book that Paul wrote before his death? If you read that book and think, here's an old man who's been beaten, dragged out, stoned, and I don't mean with a bong, stoned with rocks. <laughs> Got to say that in New York now. <laughs> and dragged out of the city. He's been through so much. He's at the end of his life. He's in chains. It's his last letter. He's old. He's going to die. He's going to be executed. He knows it, and he writes this letter to Timothy. You read it with that perspective, Second Timothy will come alive to you. And that's what we, we, we need to read this. This is the last words of David. He's dying. He's looking at his life. And he knows it's going to be over. And he says this. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. If you have an ESV, as I'm reading from, if you notice in verse 2, the quotations are, the quotation begins at verse 2 as if that's when the oracle begins. Um, I don't think so. Um, I think the oracle begins right after now these are the last words of David as the NIV and other, other Bible translators um, uh, also comment on that too as well. So I think, I think the writer, the narrator is saying now these are the last words of David and David now is speaking on the third person. Okay, four statements about himself in the third person. And, and, and I guess as we think of this, if you were given an opportunity, and we're gonna come back to this, but if you were given an opportunity 
to write something down in your last days on earth, what your summation of your life, what's important to you, what would it be? What, what would you want others to remember about you? There's a man named James French. First name James, last name French. Keep that in mind. A convicted murderer who was electrocuted in 1966 on August 10th uh, in Oklahoma. And as they were strapping him to the electric chair, uh, the prison guards and the other officials and and the reporters were all there. He turned to his reporter and he said this, his last words. Hey, fellas, how about this for a headline for tomorrow's paper? French fries. I thought it was funny. John Newton, Amazing Grace. I'm in the land of the dying. I'm soon going to the land of the living. Last words. Daniel Webster, right before his death, said this. The great mystery is Jesus Christ and the gospel. What would the condition of any any of us be if we had not the hope of immortality? Thank God the gospel of Jesus Christ brought life and immortality to light. And his last words then were, I still live. Some of you may not remember, but I do. W.C. Fields, he said, I'm looking for loopholes. Got news for him, there are none. But what would you say? David is preparing to say what he wants people to remember him by. But notice first, before we get into it, notice what it says. It says the oracle. See that? The oracle of David. That's, That's a weighty terminology. What David is saying, he's being a prophet here and declaring getting ready to declare the very word of David. It'll be clear as David gets past this uh, uh, idea of who he is that this isn't David speaking. This is God speaking through David. So so he says right up there, the oracle of David, I'm going to speak the very word of God to you in a moment. But look at the descriptions first. It's interesting, well, we'll get in there. Look what it says, there's four things. He's the son of Jesse, he's a man who raised on high, he's anointed of God, and he's a sweet psalmist of Israel. You see what he's doing? David is acknowledging his ancestry. He's acknowledging that he has been, he had humble beginnings, right? He's the youngest son of Jesse. If you remember, he was, uh, the family was of no great standings. He was the runt of the litter, if you remember way back. Uh, he, he was almost overlooked. They're like, uh, remember Sam, uh, Samuel was going to anoint the next king? They're like, mm, it doesn't seem like you have anybody here worthy of kingship. And uh, God's like, stop. Don't look at the outward appearance. All y'all just so interested in what people look from the outside, just like they did when they got Saul. And Samuel says to the family, get the young boy and bring him to me. God called this little shepherd boy And God had blessed him, God had exalted him, and God made this boy from a humble beginnings, the king of Israel. Second, raised on high. David acknowledges all that God has done for him. Even when things are going well, David was quick to acknowledge God's greatness. That's a great principle to remember. When things are going really well, remember the greatness of God and the work of God's mercy and grace in your life. Even when David received the covenant promise from, from Nathan in, in 2 Samuel 7, his, his prayer of gratitude was, Who am I, O God, 
And what is my house that you have brought me this far because of your promise? According to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant known. You are great, O Lord, our God. Man, that is so important. You know, it's easy to say those words and remember those words when things are really bad. (laughs) Oh, Lord, help me. You're great. Help me, Lord, all that you have done. It's when you're feeling really good that we need to be reminded of that. When you have four or five months sobriety under your belts and you start feeling good. Remember, David said, there's none like you, O Lord, and there's no God beside you. This is when things are going really well. Remember the Lord. Number three, he's the anointed God of Jacob. It says a lot. Remember Jacob? (laughs) Jacob known also as Israel. On the one hand, being a descendant of Jacob could be a little troublesome. He was was the uh, the word Jacob means uh, son of deception or or he deceives. God had taken Jacob and his deception and transformed him to be the man that God called him to be. And David's saying, I need transformation. But David is also linking Jacob to himself. Remember who Jacob's grandfather was. It was Abraham. And the Abrahamic covenant that was given to Abraham was also given to his sons. God also promised Jacob as he did Abraham. The king shall come from your body. David was one of the promised kings. David is connecting himself with the promise that was given to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant that God will raise up a king. And he will bless the nation. Gave it to Abraham, gave it to Isaac, gave it to Jacob. And now David is is saying, I am am part of that promise. Third, look what he says. He is the sweet psalmist. I love that. The Lord is my shepherd. How, How many have been comforted by that? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. (laughs) Ah, the Psalms. You read the Psalms? Ah, the Psalms are sweet. And David wrote many of them. If you're not familiar with the Psalms, I direct you there this week. Read the Psalms. They are beautiful. They, they, They speak of every human experience possible. Are you angry? It's in the Psalms. Are you bewildered? It's in the Psalms. If you're like, how could that wicked person prosper? It's in the Psalms. If you think, Lord, I have no place else to go. In in the midst of this distress, it seems the world is against me. It's in the Psalms. It's in the Psalms. These descriptions of David reflect his humility. He's a, a humble Shepherd, born in a humble farmer's home. He was raised from the Lord. He was anointed of God. It's not about his self-serving or self-seeking gain. It's about what God has done. And every one of these descriptions really speaks about his family, speaks about his political administration, his military might, his spiritual influence. But we know that this sweet psalmist of Israel was not 
perfect. He was a flawless man. Not a flawless man. He had flaws. So what will be your last words? Will you think back, wow, all that I have done. I am great. I have done much. Or will it be, God is great. God has done so much. Frightful is the one on his deathbed who is trusting in himself, trusting in his own accomplishments. You see, David's reminding himself what God has done for him and through him. And now, after he recognizes his humble beginnings, the work of God, he speaks about who God is. Look at verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me or through me could be translated. His word is on my tongue. This God, his word is on my tongue. The word of God is coming to David. God speaks. Aren't you glad God speaks? Aren't you glad you have the written, spoken word from God that you can turn to, read, be encouraged, be strengthened as God was speaking directly to you, the God of the universe, the creator of the galaxies, speaks to you through his word. He speaks through prophets. He spoke through apostles. And finally he speaks, Hebrews tells us, through his son and through his word. And before we get to hear again about what God has says, look, what he's, look, at, look at the text. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel, the rock of Israel, the God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me. Notice, notice what, what description that David is giving to this God, his God, the God of Israel, the God of the universe. Notice the description with me. I don't want you to miss it. The Spirit of the Lord speaks. It's God the Spirit. The God of Israel has spoken. The Spirit of the Lord speaks. The God of Israel has spoken. It's the Father. And the rock of Israel has said to me. The Spirit of the Lord, God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. Who is the rock of Israel? The Apostle Peter would tell you is Jesus the Christ. He is the rock. He is the chief cornerstone. David is preparing for death and he's reminding himself of all uh, who God is and he's teaching us of the amazing blessings that he's received from the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Do you understand this morning that David is the ancestry? Comes from the lineage, comes from the promise, comes from the, 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 the promise that God has given to Adam, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, that he and from his lineage will come the mediator, the rock, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the rock of Israel. He came from a humble beginning. You know what that sounds like to me? Listen to Isaiah 53. Who has believed what has heard from us, what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, talking about Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. From the world's perspective, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not, 
Surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteem them stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. From the humble beginnings of a, of a carpenter boy, carpenter's son, no one's seen anything great about him. He bore our sorrows, he carried our, 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 he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows, he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we, that's us, like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, the Father, has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. <laughs> Even though he's the ancestry of David, David is resting in the truth of who God is. He's confident in the God of Israel. And that's just preparatory until we see the beauty of the king. The world may not recognize Jesus' beauty, but we, the children of God, need to. And we ought to. And many ancient and modern interpreters will, will read chapter 23, verses 1 through 7, as I do as well, pointing to the ultimate king, right? The, 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 the real Messiah, capital M, who will come. And what will his reign be like? Look at verse 3. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. Okay, stop there for a moment. Notice the extent of this ruler's reign, this, this, this coming king's reign. Look at the extent. The Hebrew word over men is mankind. And what David is saying is this ruler is going to come and he's going to reign and rule not just over Israel, not just over this, this promised land, this piece of property, but he's going to reign and rule over all mankind, all of humanity. He will reign. How will he do it? He will do it justly. Actually, the Hebrew word, I think is a better translation, is righteously. He will reign and rule righteously. Now, we've had many, many, many rulers over, the, over, the human, over human history. Some were righteous, some were unrighteous. Some did the right thing, some didn't do the right thing. Probably, if you ask somebody in this room, two or three people, you might talk about the same person. They may say righteous, and another person may say unrighteous. No one has ever done it perfectly. That's what David's talking about. He's talking about a rule and a reign that will come, that will be perfect, Justice and righteousness to everyone. Even David in chapter 8, verse 15, we talk about equity and he reigned and ruled. It wasn't perfect. We know that. But this one, this righteous ruler, one who does what is right by those he rules every time perfectly. And he does it not only justly, but look what it says, in the fear of God. The one who will come upholds with all his might, everything that God upholds. He, he rules, his rule will be in full accord with God's rule. He will submit to the rule of his God. Only one who is under God's authority is fit to be an authority over others. He will reign. Thomas Jefferson, who denied the Jesus of the scripture, had enough sense and said this. I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King wrote this. True peace is not merely the absence of tension. 
It is the presence of justice. Blaise Pascal wrote, Justice and power must be brought together so that whatever is just may be powerful and whatever is powerful may be just. And we see this. We see this king. We see him coming. We see him establishing God's kingdom and the goodness of his rule is is just beyond, let's be honest, when we think of human kings beyond our imagination until, of course, you look at Jesus. (laughs) You look at Jesus. And as I was studying studying this, I was thinking, in what way could I share with you this morning so that, what way can I share with you this morning in order for you to get a glimpse of what that means rather than just looking forward to something that is coming in the future, which I believe wholeheartedly. And then it dawned on me. If you read the gospel accounts, one gospel, four accounts, you read in Luke that the prophecy will be that he will be great. He will be considered son of the most high God. He will inherit the throne of his ancestry, David. He will rule over his people forever. And although we see this picture in the New Testament over and over again, <clears throat> and we see even Peter's description. Remember, remember Jesus said, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of God, the Messiah. He's pointing to what? David. Right? He's, he's pointing to the promise given to David, the Messiah. We know David's not the one, but we're looking for another one. And, and look with me at verse 4. No, and then I, I want to look at something in the Luke gospel here. So this ruler, will, will, he dawns on them like a morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So again, that's a picture of it. Where, where can we see that happening? You see that happening when Jesus comes to earth and Jesus begins to uh, heal people, right? Remember the story? There's a lot of them in Matthew 9. And Jesus is healing people. He's touching people. And Jesus' miracle ministry was not because he had nothing better to do or he wanted to show off or he was a magician. Jesus' healing ministry was to give us glimpses into what the kingdom will look like. Okay? In fact, in Matthew chapter 9, at the, at the end of this long chapter of all these miracles that Jesus is doing, you know what it says? It says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out his disciples, go into the town. When they receive you, great, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them what? The kingdom of God has come near to you. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus said, It is by the finger of God that I cast out demons. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You see that? Jesus steps into the world as king who will come in his glorious kingdom and he's given us glimpses into what the kingdom will finally look like when he comes and reigns and rules. Everything will be healed. Everything will be restored. Satan will be completely defeated, cast into the fire of hell. That's the picture of the kingdom. And that's why in verse 4, it speaks of the beauty of Jesus. The kingdom is beautiful because the king is beautiful. He dawns on them like the morning light. 
This is perfect timing, right? Spring. Let the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like the rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Can't you just wait for that? When the breeze that you feel when you step outside is a warm breeze. Like when the breeze stops and the sun is on you, it feels nice now this time of year. As soon as the wind comes up, it's cold. But someday, soon, unless the Lord comes, it's going to be a, a, a warm breeze. This promised rule is like the brilliance of the sun rising on a cloudless morning. As John said, <laughs> Jesus spoke, I am what? The light of the world. It's this brightness coming from the king. Reminiscent of Genesis 1. His rule is like the sun's warmth joined with rain bringing forth growth, lush growth, life-giving rain. He's the source of new life. He's the source. And the arrival of this kingdom will come. See, that's David's hope. You see, that's our hope. Beauty, glory, righteousness, sunshine, growth. Prosperity, life-giving reign of Christ. It's beautiful. Gorgeous, bright, warm sun. Flowers grooming, grooming, blooming. <laughs> you go outside my house and everything's starting to come up, right? You seeing that? Everything is starting to grow. There's an old hymn. Actually redone by, redone by Indelible Grace. I think Sovereign Grace does it well. The hymn is called, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. Listen to these words. The king there in his beauty, without a veil is seen. The lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. When the king comes, it will not be the, the bride's dress. That is glorious. I've, been, I've done a lot of weddings. And a lot of brides are here in this room. And they were beautiful. In their beautiful dress. But when that supper comes. The beauty. Is not in the bride dress. But in the bride, bridegroom's face. In his pierced hands. We will behold his beauty. As the righteous reigning ruling king. Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. Do you know that king? Do you have that hope? Do you have that assurance? Do you see in Christ that beauty? The Bible tells in 2 Corinthians 4 that if you don't see that and you're here this morning, the reason is the God of this world has blinded your minds. He wants to keep you from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God said, let light shine out of darkness. And he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. My prayer for you this morning is that you will see the beauty of the king. And you will see 
the beauty and glory of all that Christ has done for you. His willingness, his obedience to go to the cross, brutally executed, buried, rose from the dead, so that you can have life, sunshine, growth, beauty. Ancestry of the king, the beauty of the king, and finally the covenant of the king. Verse 5, for does not my house stand so with God? For he has made For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Now, if you have a King James or a new King James, uh, it's not worded that way. It's not a rhetorical question looking for a yes. For does not my house stand with God? Yes. But I think the ESV and the NAS and NIV have it correct. But either way, what David is saying, this is what David is saying, is that my house stands with God for, look at that, for he has made an everlasting covenant with me. His salvation and David's purpose and David's promise and David's confidence is for he has made an everlasting covenant with me. My house will stand because what God has said. God has kept his remarkable promise to David. The word spoken by God to and through David was the promise of 2 Samuel. You see, he's holding on to that. And it's the first time we have here in chapter uh, 23, verse 5, where David speaks of it personally as a covenant. He's recognizing all the marks of the covenant that was given to him in 2 Samuel 7. The word covenant is not there. But here he recognizes that it is a covenant. It is ordered. See what it says? It is secure. Again, four, will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Like the grass that sprouts under the sun, verse four, David says, my help, my deliverance, my salvation, and my desires will blossom. David is a man, listen, he's facing the end of his life with just gloriously, a glorious great hope in God. That his future and his confidence is in the promises of God. David knows that his reign was nothing great or perfect. There's no shock. He had some good days. But he didn't reign in in justice and righteousness. But he's appealing to the fact that God has made a promise. And that God will fulfill his promise. David was confident he who began a good work in you will what? Carry it to its completions, Philippians 1. That's what David's hope is. But just like all covenants, you have promises, you have curse, blessing and curse. Look at verse 6. But worthless men are like thorns. They are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them, uh, who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Worthless, we saw that with, with, with Eli and Nabal, was worthless, the son of Belial. Sheba, verse 20, worthless. So, so, so this messianic king, this king of kings, this lord of lords, who will reign in justice and righteousness, will cause things to blossom like the light. He contrasted with the godless are like thorns. 
He brings freshness, lush growth, and healing. They inflict pain. They will be excluded from the kingdom that they despise. They will be thrown away. See what it says? And burned up with fire. The coming king and his kingdom will bring restoration and destruction. The coming king and his kingdom will bring salvation and judgment. (laughs) And he will purge those who want no part of his righteous reign and rule. I hope you're here this morning and you don't fit that category. I hope that you see the beauty and the glory of Jesus and are not excluded from the kingdom. He causes us to flourish as the rain and sun causes the grass to sprout and grow. But the wicked are likened to grass, are not likened to grass, they compare to thorns with no value, no future hope. They, 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 they bundled up. You're going to be doing that this spring, right? Bundling stuff up that you, that's worthless, that's, that's needless, that you don't need, and you're going to be burning them away. Listen, family, the Bible is not a message or a promise of salvation, eternal life for all men. It is an offer of salvation to all men. And apart from divine intervention, the wicked will inevitably reject the offer. And because they do, they are placed in the fire. Let me, let me just say this bluntly, biblically, and, and very lovingly in a place called hell. Jesus spoke about it. The scripture's clear. Revelation 21 and 22 reminds us that there are those who are outside the covenant promise of God. They are rejectors of God's grace. They are rejectors of God's love in the gospel. They are sons of Bilal. They're the thicket and thorns. They're the stuff that you burn. Could Jesus be thinking of this passage when he speaks of the chaff and the weeds that would be burned up in fire? Possibly. But he is the covenant mediator. And when you're in union with Jesus, you have confidence, you have hope. Where are you this morning? Are you certain? Do you have hope? Is Jesus the rock on which you build your life? Are you trusting solely on the covenantal promise and mediator and his name is Jesus? The last words of David are are, are gospel words. The hope of the world and the hope of every person is the promise of the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is the promised one. And what we see here in this text is David looking back on the covenant, looking forward on the covenant, and he's, and he's taking hope. He's taking rest. And now, that's my hope for you this morning. That's my hope, that you will take, as David did, extraordinary comfort in the promise of God in Jesus Christ. In so many ways, the book of Samuel can be taught, your kingdom come, your kingdom come, your kingdom come. This table represents the king. The bread represents his body that was broken. The blood poured out is is in the cup in which we drink. Jesus promised from Genesis 3, shows up, becomes a baby, lives a perfect life that we could not live, dies a death we should have died in our place, dies for our sins as our substitute. He's been promised from Genesis. He's been given to us. He's been crucified on our behalf. He goes into the tomb. He rises from the dead. Family, he's coming back. 
He will reign and rule in this kingdom. Do you have that hope? The Bible says, if we confess with our mouth Jesus the Lord, and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Do you recognize that? That Jesus is Lord. Lord means that you're not, you're a sinner, and you're not Lord of your life. He's Lord. And you recognize I've sinned, I've I've broken God's laws. I have violated God's laws. I've walked away from God. I've wanted to be my own Savior, Lord. And now I turn from my sinful past uh, pattern and walk. And I'm turning to you, Lord. It's called repentance. I believe that Jesus is the promised one. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. That's what this table's about. And ask him, forgive me. And he will come to you and he will forgive you. If you have ever said that prayer, or if you have come to faith in the Lord Jesus God, you're trusting in Christ alone for salvation, then this table's for you. It's not a king's table. Uh, it's, it's a Christian table. It's for believers in Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you haven't made that commitment, you haven't yielded to him as Lord and Savior, then just stay, sing. We're glad you're here. We love you. But this table is for those who have trusted Christ, who believe on the Lord Jesus God, who yielded their life, been born again by the Spirit, and trusting in Christ alone. The band's going to play. We're going to sing. You're going to quietly and in your place confess and repent of your sin. And then when you're ready, you'll come up and you'll take of the bread, you'll drink of the cup, and celebrate the forgiveness of the King of Kings. Now waiting, the Bible says, until his return. Okay? We're going to come down two rows down the center and go back this way. Let's pray. Promise after promise after promise after promise. You've made and you've kept. Open our eyes to see the truth of who you are and all that you have done. It is all of grace. Lord, some of us may not even be here next week. We don't know. And Father, as we sing this song, as we reflect on our sin, let us celebrate our forgiveness and the grace you've shown to us in Jesus Christ. So God, I pray, we pray that you would grant us faith this morning to rely upon, to lean upon, to trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to celebrate his work on our behalf, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.